0: Good morning church, happy new year, it's good to see all of you here, good to see some new faces as well, we're glad that you're with us on this first Sunday of 2022. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Revelation again, we're going to get back into our study going through this last book of God's Word. We took several weeks off during the season of Lent. Just Lent, not not Lent, Advent, excuse me. See, the pandemic has just really messed with my sense of time. That may not be a a good news for y'all this morning. My sense of time is messed up. No, we, we took some time off during Advent as we considered the first Advent of Christ. And so now we are returning to our study of this book as we are making our way to the end where we will encounter the second advent of Christ. And so um, it's always dangerous to take too many breaks from a study of a book like this, like Revelation, because there's just so much going on and it's so very complicated. It's we run the risk of losing where we are in the story and, and perhaps losing a grasp of some of the themes that hold this story together. And so I trust that our study during the season of Advent was a breath of fresh air as we took a break from a very heavy, heavy book. But I hope that uh, you've got your seatbelts on and you're ready to dive back in to the study of Revelation. For those of you who are new to our study of Revelation... And really, for the rest of us who have taken that five-week break, um, I think we would all do well to have a bit of a refresher this morning. And so let me briefly bring us up to speed on what's been happening in this book. The vision began in chapter one, when Jesus shows up to John as he's exiled on the island of Patmos. And Jesus begins to give John a vision. He says, I'm going to show you what is... And what soon must take place. And he tells John to write it down. And he does write it down. And that's what we have as the book of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus dictates to John seven real letters that are written to seven real churches in Asia Minor. And then in chapter 4, Jesus gives John a vision of the glorious throne room of God. And John sees the one sitting on the throne, and the one sitting on the throne is holding a scroll. And we talked about how that scroll contained God's sovereign plans to pull a drawstring on the timeline of eternity and bring a final end to sin and all of God's enemies, to finally and forever save God's children and to make all things new. That's what that scroll contained. But the problem was, nobody was worthy to open that scroll. And so those things weren't going to happen. And John was sad about that. But then a voice said, but the Lamb is worthy. There is one who is worthy to open the scroll, and it's the Lamb. Jesus Christ, the Lamb. He was worthy to open the scroll. And so he began opening the scroll." And he opens it by breaking the seals on it. And there were seven of those seals on that scroll. And that was the contents of the next several chapters. Chapters 5 about through, uh, through about the midway point of chapter 8. The seven seal judgments. And these seven seal judgments, which affected about a fourth of the earth, were followed then by the seven trumpet judgments in chapters 8 through 11, which affected a third of the earth. And so we began to see an escalation in the severity of these judgments that were being poured out on the earth. And those seven trumpet judgments were then followed by the seven bowl judgments in chapters 15 and 16, which affected the whole earth. Now, John's vision of these three sets of seven judgments, the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments, his vision of those judgments was interrupted at various points, interrupted by pictures of the church and pictures of the church's enemy. The pictures of the church were fourfold. First, it was that of the 144,000 back in chapter 7 which was a picture of the church lined up as if in battle formation, preparing to enter into the tribulation. The second picture of the church was in the second half of that same chapter, chapter 7, and that was of an uncountable multitude coming out of the tribulation, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and this was a people from every tribe, language, tongue and nation who were gathered together worshiping the one who sits on the throne and the lamb the third picture of the church was in chapter 7 excuse me chapter 11 where we saw two witnesses or two prophets if you will and those two prophets were testifying about god To a world that had rejected God and them and a world that ultimately killed them. But then they came back to life and God brought them up to heaven. And that was a picture to us of the church faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that was growing in its hostility to both the church and the gospel. And that was a very scary picture of the church. Because it was a picture of the church surrounded by a world that was opposed to it and its message. The fourth picture of the church carried that same thought forward. And that was a picture of the church in the very next chapter, chapter 12, of the church being pursued by a great enemy. That enemy was introduced to us in chapters 12 and 13 as we called it the unholy trinity. There was the dragon that represented Satan, the first beast that came out of the sea that was the Antichrist, the second beast that came out of the earth that was the false prophet. And these, these were pictured as fantastic dragons and beasts. And we were reminded that Revelation, as apocalyptic literature, had all kinds of fantastic um, descriptions of different things and visions and, and they were symbolic of other realities and so we don't interpret uh, the dragon and those beasts literally but figuratively understanding them to be things in in the real world and so uh, we saw satan as the great deceiver and the enemy of christ seeing the antichrist as representative both of world empires And of individuals throughout history who have opposed the church. And we saw the false prophet as a spirit of of deception that sought to cause people to worship the first beast. So that's our summary. That's where we are now. So now we find ourselves at the end of those bowl judgments. And the seventh bowl, the very last one that was poured out At the end of chapter 16, took us to the very end of the timeline of the world. That last bowl was, remember how we talked about how the the seal and the trumpet and the bowl judgments would telescope us to the end and then back. And that last bowl did that very thing. That last bowl telescoped us to the very end of the world. And at the end of chapter 16, we're, we're told in that picture of the end about a great city. A great city that is split into three parts, meaning that it was utterly destroyed. And we're told the name of that city, Babylon the Great. And we're told in verse 19 of chapter 16, God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of Of the wine of the fury of his wrath. In other words, the great city Babylon, whatever that was, was going to fall. And so now, church, what we have in the next couple of chapters, chapter 17 and chapter 18, are the details of the fall of Babylon. Chapter 17, which we will cover this week and next, looks at the fall of Babylon from a spiritual perspective in chapter 18 we'll look at the fall of babylon from an earthly perspective and this morning we're going to cover just the six verses first six verses of chapter 17 but by way of context i want us to read the whole chapter this morning and so follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures as we read revelation chapter 17 church this is god's word Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great. "'mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. "'And I saw the woman, "'drunk with the blood of the saints, "'the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. "'When I saw her, I marveled greatly. "'But the angel said to me, "'Why do you marvel? "'I will tell you the mystery of the woman "'and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns "'that carries her. "'The beast that you saw was and is not.' And is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and faithful and chosen. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is a great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Let's pray. Our God and King, we thank you for your word and we ask now that you would Give us focused attention to not only understand what it says, but to live our life in view of what it means. Father, forbid us from walking away from this time simply having another notch in our belt of understanding what this strange book means. As if it were some kind of code book that now we know a little bit more about. Father, help us to understand the picture that you're drawing and how that has application to our past, our present, and our future. And Father, help us to live in light of this truth and to be formed into the image of Christ because of it. And Father, we pray for those among us In this very room, perhaps, who don't know you by faith in your son, Jesus. And we pray that the bad news of certain judgment and the good news of grace through Jesus Christ is made readily apparent to them. And we pray for a harvest of souls this morning as you bring your children to faith. We ask all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So Revelation chapter 17, let's dive in. It can be divided into two halves. One half we're covering today, the first six verses, where we're introduced to this woman, the great prostitute she's called. And then the second half, which we'll, Lord willing, cover next week, which really gives an interpretation of the vision, but the interpretation, if you'll notice, has less to do with the great prostitute and more to do with the beast upon whom she is sitting. So this morning we're going to focus on the first six verses and cover the rest next week. So one of those angels from chapter 16 who poured out those bold judgments comes to John and speaks to him and says, come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. And so the angel goes on to describe this great prostitute, what she looks like, and what she's doing. And then the angel takes John, carries John away in the spirit into a vision, and John sees the great prostitute with his own eyes. And so, first, we have the description from the angel about what the angel says about this woman. And then we have John's report of what what he actually sees in the vision. But the question before us this morning is, who is this woman? Is she a real woman? If she's not a real woman, what is she? What does she represent? Does she represent something in the past, something in the present, or does she represent something that is still to come in the future? And so we need to identify this woman because it's going to be very difficult for us to understand this passage and next week's passage, and certainly even more difficult for us to apply this passage to our lives if we don't understand who this woman is. So in order to identify her, let's look in these first six verses and try to discern what it is that we learn about her, both from what the angel says about her and about what from what John reports to us that he sees with his own eyes in his vision. We're told that she is a prostitute. Now, prostitution is proverbially referred to as the world's oldest profession. And it certainly was active during this time. If you'll recall in our study of the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3, we learned about the Roman imperial cult. And uh, specifically in the letter to Thyatira, The church there in Thyatira was was rebuked because they tolerated a prostitute named Jezebel. But this prostitute here in Revelation 17 is on a whole new level. First, she's called the great prostitute. The Greek word, megas, which means largest or the most prominent. We're told that her clientele are the kings of the earth. We're also told at the end of verse 2 that that all of of those who dwell on the earth, which remember was John's code word for unbelievers, those who dwell on the earth, was, was his way of referring to unbelievers. And we're told that all of the earth dwellers, all of them were drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. And so this tells us uh, a lot about who this woman is. But mostly this should tell us that this is not a real woman. It can't be a real woman. The angel is not describing here a high-priced prostitute who caters to the kings of the earth. But rather he's telling John about this woman. The angel's telling John about this woman whoever she is, whatever she represents, that she has global influence, worldwide influence. This idea is also seen in the fact that we're told that she is seated on many waters. In the chapter that we just read, we're told in verse 15 that the waters represent peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Now, what does it mean that she's sitting on peoples and multitudes and nations and languages? Well, whatever it means, it should mean to us that it's not a real woman, because a real woman doesn't sit on nations and multitudes. Whatever that means, it tells us that her influence is worldwide and global in scope. But why is she described as a prostitute here? Well, often in biblical prophecy. Spiritual unfaithfulness is symbolized through adultery and prostitution. Consider the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, Hosea the prophet's wife in real life was a prostitute. And God said, I want you to marry her. Why? Because his marriage to Gomer was to be a figurative example of what Israel was doing. Gomer as the prostitute symbolized Israel's unfaithfulness to leave her own God and to follow after the gods of the pagans. And so her unfaithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness was symbolized in Gomer's adultery and prostitution. So the fact that this woman is a prostitute symbolizes to us that she leads people away from God. Like a prostitute, she offers pleasure and satisfaction and enjoyment. But the pleasure and satisfaction and enjoyment that she offers is outside of God and outside of God's will. And so she is proverbially the the siren song that leads men and women away from God. And so her her influence is global. She, She serves to lead people away from God. And we also learn here that she is powerfully alluring. She is powerfully alluring. I look the word alluring up in the dictionary and the definition is powerfully and mysteriously attractive or fascinating, seductive. Powerfully and mysteriously attractive or fascinating and seductive. I think that's a pretty good description of the woman that John sees in this vision. That's why the kings of the earth are caught up in her seduction. That's why all of the earth dwellers are drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. They are drawn to her. They're drawn to what she offers. And they can't get enough of what she offers. This is what is meant by John's description of her clothing, that she was, as it says in verse 4, arrayed in purple and scarlet. These were the finest of linens, available only to the wealthiest of that day goes on to say that she was adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand, not just any cup, but a golden cup. All of this describes for us a woman who is alluring and desirable. And the people of earth were allured by her. They wanted what she had to offer. They desired it. We also see that she has an evil companion. The angel says to John that she sits on many waters, again symbolizing for us her global influence, but when John sees her in his vision, she's seated on a scarlet beast. The beast is described as being full of blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. That's an exact description of the first beast that arose out of the sea in chapter 13. It's the exact same description that we'll find of that first beast that was referred to in that setting as Antichrist. And the remainder, as we said, the remainder of this chapter, chapter 17, is going to deal with that beast and what it represents and and what happens to it. So we're not, not going to get a whole lot of detail about that this morning except to note the very close association between that beast and this woman the great prostitute this beast is the antichrist the enemy of christ and the enemy of christ's bride the church and the fact that the woman is seated on this beast explains to us and symbolizes to us that she too is an enemy of the church. The fact that she is an enemy of the church is further demonstrated by the fact that we're told at the end of our section this morning in verse 6 that she's drunk with the blood of the saints and she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Whoever she is and whatever she represents Her actions result in Christians being killed. Now, I would submit to you, I don't think that is figurative. It's figurative that she's drunk with their blood. It's figurative that she drinks their blood as if she were some vampire. But it is not figurative that as a result of her actions and her influence, Christians will die. And so it's very sobering to see her influence on the church and the effect that she has on the church and so this is a description of this woman the final thing that we learn about her is that she's named after a city in verse 5 John tells us that she has a name on her forehead and that name that's on her forehead that had been a mystery is now being revealed so what's the name The name is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. It's quite a name, right? Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and mother of earth's abominations. It's kind of like, you know, when when Revelation talks about a a name on your forehead or a seal on your forehead, forehead, it's like, you know, everything aside, this is the reality of who this person is. We're told that the dwellers on earth. Those whose names are not written in the book of life, they will have a, 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 a mark on their forehead that symbolizes that they belong to the beast. We're also told that those whose names are written in the book of life, they have a seal on their forehead signifying that they belong to Jesus, that they belong to God. Now there's a, there's a name written on the forehead of this woman that, that tells us who she is, even though she's got the gold and the scarlet and purple linens and all of that, she is Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the mother of all of earth's abominations. Now this name is what connects her to the great city Babylon that we were told about at the end of chapter 16. That great city that, that at the end, when we telescope to the end, will be broken into three Three parts. Utterly destroyed. That city who will drain the cup of the wine of the fury of the wrath of God. And so, she's now associated with a city. So, if she's not a real person, is she a real city? Now, some have said, yes, she does display for us and symbolize for us a very real city in the world. And they say, well, she's Rome. They've interpreted her to be Rome. And this certainly on a certain level would have made sense for John and his first century readers. Because Rome was the world empire of that day. And it had vast influence over the known world. Some might have have said global influence at that time. And she certainly was an alluring city, Rome, offering wealth and and satisfaction and all kinds of trinkets to her citizens. And of course, we know that Rome was an enemy of the church and led people away from the God of the Bible, and at various points requiring people to worship the emperor. And so certainly we see an association with evil companions. And, some, and so some have said, well that's who Babylon is. It's it's Rome. And that's it. Personally I find that argument unpersuasive. Because while Rome's influence of that day may have seemed global, the Roman Empire was limited to southeastern Europe, much of the Middle East, and most of North Africa. And it wasn't truly global, certainly not global enough to say that all of Earth's dwellers, all of the unbelievers on the Earth, were drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. We do know that there was Roman uh, there, there was Christian church persecution of the church, Christian persecution during this day, at the hands of the Roman Empire. We saw some of that in some of the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. But that persecution historically was temporary and very localized. It became much bigger later on. But during this time, during the first century, it was very temporary, very localized. And certainly not so much that we could say that they were drunk, that the Rome was drunk with the blood of the saints. Besides, if she's Rome, this Babylon, then why she call Babylon, right? It's because Babylon, which was in ruins at this point, Babylon didn't exist anymore. The Babylonian Empire had, had been in ruins for centuries at this point. But Babylon represented the same kind of evil influence in the Old Testament as the Roman Empire does now in the New Testament, in the first century. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah as he writes of Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 51. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. And so certainly from a first century perspective, we could say that Rome was the modern day Babylon, but couldn't the same be said of Alexandria in Egypt or Athens in Greece or Constantinople in the Middle Ages or Baghdad or Cairo? For that matter, couldn't it be said of of London and Paris in the 16th and 17th century? Berlin, or Moscow in the, in the 17th and 18th century? Or couldn't we say this today of New York or Los Angeles or Hollywood? Couldn't we say of all of these cities that they had or they have today the spirit of Babylon with great influence, great wealth, Alluring cities, offering pleasures and enjoyment and satisfaction to all her citizens. See, I think we can deduce from all of what we learn about this woman in the first six verses. That Babylon the Great is not a woman. Nor is she confined to any one city of the past or the present. But she is best understood as the world itself. You see, John is drawing for us a very noteworthy comparison between two cities in these closing chapters of Revelation. He's drawing a comparison between the great city Babylon. And another city that he begins to talk about in chapter 21. So keep your finger here at 17 and and put another finger at chapter 21. And I I want to display for you this this contrast that John is drawing between the two cities. It's very obvious when we look at both of them in view. So how does chapter 17 begin? Verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Now turn to chapter 21 and look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you, not the judgment of the great prostitute, but come, and I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. and So two women are being compared here. Babylon, the great prostitute, and the bride of the Lamb, which is us, the church. So what did the angel do in each of these situations? Look at verse 3 of chapter 17. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. What did the angel do in chapter 21? Look at verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit, not to the wilderness where I saw a woman sitting on a beast, but to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So the comparison is between Babylon the Great, referring to the world and the cities of man, and this other city, this new Jerusalem, that represents the bride of the Lamb, which is the church. And what about her adornment? What was the woman wearing Again, 17 verse 4, we've read this. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. And how was the new Jerusalem adorned? This new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 11 of chapter 21. It had the glory of God. Its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. You see, Babylon the Great is just a cheap imitation of the New Jerusalem. It's Augustine's city of man versus his city of God. The New Jerusalem is the church, and Babylon the Great is the world. This contrast is obvious when we just step back and look at it. And so, what is John learning in this vision that he's given? What is John learning from this, and what should we take away from it? We take away from it that that Babylon the Great is not some future woman, nor is Babylon the Great relegated to some specific future city. She is every city that rises out and calls to us, come to me, and I'll make your every dream come true. Come to me and find pleasure and wealth and enjoyment and delight only don't bring your Christ instead worship me follow me church our world calls out to us with a siren song come to me and I will fulfill your every desire it holds out to us that golden cup that promises to quench our every longing. But we simply don't realize that what's in the cup is what John says. The abominations of the earth. What's in the cup will poison our souls. Earlier in his life, this same John, John the Apostle, warned believers of the allurement of the world we read this earlier first john 2 verses 15 through 17 do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world then listen to how he describes what's in the world the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes pride of life what we want what we see that we've got to have is not from the father but is from the world and then he tells us and the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of god abides forever babylon the great is the world It's the empire of man. It's the the world system around us that is opposed to God, that is opposed to Christ, that is opposed to the church, and opposed to the gospel. And a world that aligns itself ultimately with God's enemies. So that's the truth that we walk away with, but how do we apply that? How do we bring application now to our lives from this truth? Three applications I want to leave you with. First, we need to recognize that what the world offers to us is an inferior imitation of what God offers us. Babylon says, You want something that is true, good, and beautiful, and I can provide it. And on the outside, (laughs) it looks true, it looks good, it looks beautiful. It's purple and scarlet linen. It's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. And those things, man, they certainly seem true. They seem good. They seem beautiful. And they're appealing to us. We want them. We desire them. And church, that's a very important point that we should not do an end around. We should be cautioned against convincing ourselves that we don't desire what the world offers because we do. We want it. It looks good to us, this Turkish delight that the world offers. But it's just a cheap, inferior, and temporary imitation of what God offers. You see... Our desire of what the world offers, our desire of it itself, our desire should tell us that we were made for something more. We want something true. We want something good, something beautiful, and God provides it. God provides it. See, these things that the world offers are not necessarily bad and evil in and of themselves. They are evil because they distort and distract from what is genuinely true, good, and beautiful. The fact that the prostitute offers offers sexual fulfillment to the kings of the earth does not mean that sex is evil. Sexual fulfillment is true, good, and beautiful when pursued within the confines of the context that God made for it, which is marriage, biblical marriage. Now, we should should caution ourselves against assuming a posture that revelation doesn't have anything to do with our lives today, because this is where we live every day. The world offers us to to us something that appeals to our God-given desires for what is true, good, and beautiful. But what it actually offers us is a cheap, inferior, and temporary imitation of it. That's the first application. Second, recognize that though the world and those who are following after the world seems to prosper today, her complete and utter destruction is not far off. At the end of verse 6, John records his own reaction to this vision, and it's one of amazement. He says, "When I saw her, I marveled greatly." John expects to see a woman in judgment. After all, that's what the angel says. I am going to show you the judgment of the great prostitute. And so he expects to see a woman in judgment, whatever that would look like. But that's not what he sees in his vision. He sees a woman who is wealthy. He sees a woman that is unmatched in her beauty. A woman that has global influence over the whole world. And we're told that he marveled greatly at the sight of her. And I can't help but wonder if John thought, where's the judgment? Where's the judgment? Well, the judgment was not far off. One of the things that we'll see next week in the remainder of chapter 17 is that the beast is going to turn on her. Listen to verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw on the beast, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Her destruction is not far off. One of the great themes of The book of Revelation is that God will bring final and fair judgment for all sin and rebellion against Him. He's heavy on mercy right now because He's still bringing sinners to the gospel. There's still time to repent. There's still hope for redemption. But there will be a day when God's mercy will be no more and judgment will be poured out. And those who followed the world and drank from her cup and rejected Christ, they will receive their due reward, and it will be eternal judgment. But those who embraced Christ and drank from His cup instead of the world's and followed Him instead of the world, they will receive their inheritance. And as we learned last week, their inheritance, our inheritance, will be imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Their inheritance will be life everlasting with God. So don't marvel at this world. Though it seems to prosper, though it seems to have incredible influence, though it is closely attached to evil, don't marvel at it. No matter how great it gets, instead marvel that no matter how great it gets, and it'll get greater, it will be completely and utterly done away with. Instead, marvel at Jesus. Marvel at the Redeemer. And so, consequently, a third application, recognizing those two things are true. Recognizing that that what the world offers is just a cheap imitation of what God offers. And secondly, recognizing that Though the world might seem to prosper today, her destruction is not far off. Recognizing those things to be true, thirdly, follow Jesus and not the world. Follow Jesus and not the world. Don't allow yourself to be influenced by the world. Allow yourself to be influenced by Jesus Christ. G.K. Beale says, we become what we worship. In fact, he wrote a book by that very title. We become what we worship, a biblical theology of idolatry. If we worship something long enough, we follow it, we obey it, we love it, eventually we're going to begin to look like it. We're going to begin to smell like it. We're going to begin to act like it. And so, we worship the world, we follow the world, we love the world, we obey the world, Eventually, we're going to begin to look like the world. But if we worship Jesus, we follow Him, we we serve Him, we love Him, we obey Him, friend, we will begin to look like Him. So who do you want to be like? The world or Jesus? Those who know and love Jesus will increasingly find themselves rejecting what the world has to offer and following Jesus. Let me close with a gospel insight on this. And I really want you to hear me on this. Apart from the gospel, every single one of us would be shackled to Babylon hopelessly shackled, hypnotized by her never-ending promises of wealth and satisfaction and delight and enjoyment, and we would have no way out. And we would receive the just reward for that pursuit, which is eternal judgment. But God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. For those in here who have been given that everlasting life by the grace of God, through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, resolve yourself, friend, to honor and glorify and serve and follow and obey Jesus, not the world. And if you have found yourself looking more like the world than your Redeemer, then friend, just repent. Repent of that. And fall upon the mercy of God. Confess your sins to God. Recognizing that he has forgiven you. And ask him to help you serve him, love him, honor him, walk behind him instead of walking behind the world. And by the way, remember what Jesus said is going to happen to those who follow him. As he said to Matthew as he's calling his first disciples to him, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let's be that church. Remember, following Jesus doesn't mean that we isolate ourselves from the world. As if we live in some kind of paralyzing fear that we're going to somehow be stained by the world and paralyzed from the mission that we're called to. Instead, recognize that he has us here because he sent us to the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are still in the world that God might redeem sinners back to himself out of the world. Let us be that. But finally, for those here in this very room or within the hearing of my voice who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation back to God, of your condition. You are following Babylon the great. You are lying with the prostitute. You've traded in true satisfaction and lasting joy for a cheap and inferior imitation. And you are headed for an eternity apart from God. If you want something different, if you want something more, if you long to be reconciled to the God who made you, if you long to be freed from the the shame and the guilt and the eternal judgment for your sin and rebellion against God, your only hope is to throw yourself at the mercy of God and trust God in Jesus Christ, his son, alone. You cannot earn your way out of that condition. You can't buy your way out of that condition. You can only faith your way out. And you faith your way out by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again. You turn from your sin and your self-rule and you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, in His rule over your life. So will you come to faith in Christ this morning and begin a brand new life of following Him instead of the world? Let's pray. Our God, we thank You so much for Your precious, holy, and inspired Word that gives to us this morning a message of hope, a message of correction, a message of your grace being offered to sinners and rebels like us. Father, as we see this picture of Babylon, Father, we who are real with ourselves will admit that That describes us. We walked away from you. We chose our own path. We chose to be independent of you. And we stood in a place of deserved judgment. But you were so jealous for our worship. So determined to reconcile your children back to yourself. That you made a way for even dirty sinners like us following after Babylon to be made right with you. And so, Father, in faith, we thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for Christmas, the first Advent, and all that that accomplished for us. Thank you for bringing us to faith in Jesus and giving us new life in Christ. Thank you for the mission and the ministry that you've given us in our church and our community. Father, we still live around Babylon, though. So we do ask that you would protect us from the evil one as Jesus prayed for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. But, Lord, we don't want to be isolated from the world. We don't want to be absent from the world because we know that when Jesus prayed in that same garden, he also prayed that, saying that we, he had sent us to the world just as you, Father, had sent him into the world So, Father, we know that we live as sent people. Make us fishers of men. Help us to follow you so much, not only that we look like you and we act like you, but we're used by you through the proclamation of your gospel to bring people into the faith, to be fishers of men. Make us faithful in that in this new year, Lord. And we pray that by your grace and for your glory, at the end of 2022, we will look more like Jesus than we do today. Make that so, Lord. And Father, for those among us who don't know Jesus, who've never come to faith in Christ, Lord, I pray that the incredibly bad news of their hopeless condition is made readily apparent to them. And in the next breath, that they would see the incredible and eternal hope that is held out in the gospel. We ask, Father, that you would usher them across the line of faith to trust in Christ alone not to trust in their own works, not to trust in their own ability to make themselves a better person, not to trust in their own church attendance, not to trust in their own religious experience, but to trust in Christ crucified and risen again as their only hope to be rescued from what they deserve. Bring them to faith in Jesus and make them a new person. And Lord, would you be glorified through their life and through our life? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.